you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. We're continuing our series right where we left off. Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go through the entire chapter. It's a little longer. Um, It's also in the bulletin, or you can pull out your phone. Um, But again, we are going to be in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, and we are beginning in verses 1. This is the word of our Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go after, go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth And swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This is the the word of our God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
May you use this time to glorify yourself and may you speak through me. May this not be insights that I made myself, but that I might be rightfully drawing out what you would have us to know today. Pray that we might apply this to our hearts and we might be able to see your Savior, Jesus Christ, more clearly through this passage. We pray this in your Son's holy name. Amen. Society has regularly pitted ignorance against knowledge. In fact, uh, many might often want to treat ignorance as a noble pursuit. We have phrases such as ignorance is bliss, the less I know, the better. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. And most of us have probably used ignorance to avoid even moral responsibility. You can consider even when you're just a child and you would tell your parents to get out of trouble things like, I didn't know that was a rule, or I didn't know that would happen to me, or I didn't really know they would care about something like that. But now think back to the passage we have just read, Hosea chapter 4. And God is coming again as a prosecuting attorney against the people of Israel. And he has one accusation to make against them, and it is this. The people of Israel do not know the Lord. And because they do not know him, God is coming in judgment against them. And following this, we can clearly see for ourselves today one central point, and that is this, summing up the entire chapter that ignorance of God breeds corruption and destruction. Again, the, the major focus of Hosea 4 and the takeaway statement of this entire chapter for us today is this one point. Ignorance of God breeds corruption and destruction. Because look again at our passage. Before we even get to verses 1 to 3, it's essentially an introduction to the entire passage. And you can immediately, after reading this, that this was a very hard chapter to get through. That there was a lot of judgment, a lot of harsh language, and it might have even been jarring for you, considering what we just listened to last week in chapter 3, where Will was talking about the unconditional love of God that he has for the people. And now, we're suddenly abruptly back in God's judgment. Sometimes it's actually hard to read the book of Hosea, because there aren't many transition statements for us to latch onto and see one change to another. In fact, uh, an Old Testament professor of mine has described Hosea as the schizophrenic prophet who will abruptly change from God's unconditional grace and mercy to God's great wrath and judgment. So read again with that in mind. Read chapter 4, what we have just saw that the Lord is summoning them to this covenant lawsuit in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has an accusation, a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And that knowledge of God in verse 1, it wasn't just the fact that they weren't acknowledging that God exists. But knowledge of God in this chapter is assuming a conscious obedience to all that God has given in Torah, in his law for the people. In fact, we can even fall into the same trap today, that we often want to treat knowing God as just something that we intellectually assent to and 
as long as we just acknowledge that a God exists. That's really all we need to worry about. We don't need to worry about what scripture tells us. We don't need to worry about key tenets of what Christianity is about. And that was the deeper problem is the fact that this knowledge that is required of us is not just an awareness of God's existence, but is rather a knowledge that is actively involving the entirety of our lives. But turn to verse 2 now, and we see rather than having a knowledge of God, we see exactly what the people of Israel are doing. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And you might actually hear echoes in that verse, because we just read a, the verse that this is alluding to. Because think of, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. That the people have become so ignorant of God that they are directly violating the fundamental and foundational moral law given to them at Mount Sinai. And verse 3 shows us the result of this covenant of faith, unfaithfulness of the people. Therefore, the land mourns. Literally, it's withering away is the language there. And all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. That if the people weren't ignorant of God, if they had a deep awareness of who he was, they would be able to look at what's happening in the land and see that these are actually the covenant curses God has promised at the end of Deuteronomy. That if they did not obey him, if they would not be obedient to him, the land would wither away. They would not have crops. They would see suffering in the land. But they have become ignorant that they don't even understand what is going on with these judgments. This isn't arbitrary by God himself. These are the very promises he has given at the end of Deuteronomy. But after these accusations, because verses 1 to 3 is essentially the introduction to this entire chapter, God begins to declare judgment, and he brings evidence against the people, and he brings evidence against particular groups of people in Israel. And that's going to serve as the basic outline for us today. Because the first group of people that God is accusing in verses 4 to 11 is God brings evidence against the religious leaders of Israel. He is, we would imagine when there's corruption going on, you'd think it would be the moral degenerates or the criminals, but look at what verses 4 says. Let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. The priests would have been considered the social elites. They would have been the people that were actually upholding the law, but the important aspect of the priests is not only were they the ones that were to uphold Torah, but they were also the ones that were meant to instruct the people in Torah. And verse 6 gives us essentially the basic problem, but before that we even see that instead of them instructing, they are stumbling by day, and the prophets, the, these societal elites, are completely corrupt and unable to actually bring this law to the people. And verse 6, as I've said, gives us the basic problem of the entire chapter. Read it again, and it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, 
And because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Forgetting their children of literally forgetting the, the actual corporate Israel here. Because they are not just ignorant of God's law, they are willfully and self-consciously rejecting to teach it not only to themselves, but the priest, these elite leaders in the spiritual life of the Israel, they are no longer teaching it to the people themselves. They are woefully neglectful of the duties that were expected of them. And think of what that means for us today, even. Because a fundamental duty of leaders in the church is instruction, and it's, uh, it's teaching. Sometimes we, we just assume that, and we, we realize that's important, but we might have a temptation to look at spiritual leaders, pastors, or elders in the church, and we think what's really important is that he's charismatic. He can hold my attention for 35 minutes. He can give me interesting illustrations that help me to really understand the text. But what is telling us here that the fundamental responsibility of leaders in the church is that they are to teach the people, that they have authority and they are to actually draw this out and help people understand what God has to say in his word. That as Paul later in 1 Timothy 3, he gives us qualifications of the leaders in the church. And one of them is to be apt to teach. And that is not the only characteristic of a teacher but it is not ever less than being able to teach. It's why James tells us in chapter 3 that not many people should be called to be teachers, and it's why this is such a high calling that even PCA pastors and other denominations, they take vows before God himself to come into this role as a teacher. But come back to the passage. Go to verse 7, and we see that in verse 7, the more they, the priest, increased, the more they sinned against me. The irony, and we would often think if there's more priests in society, if there's a church on every single side of the road, then we're going to be more spiritually prosperous. But Hosea is being ironic here, saying the more priests are in our society, the more corrupt Israel has become. And now he just gives us judgment upon judgment, detailed evidence of what exactly the priests are doing. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which takes away the understanding and essentially, to paraphrase one commentator, because food and sex is what these priests were cherishing and devoting themselves to, food and sex is what ultimately fails these priests at the end of the day. It is, not, it is God, it is not Baal who ultimately gives them prosperity and fertility. And their conscious rejection of teaching the people is what is going to bring judgment upon them. My desire for all of us today in seeing this passage is to develop a nose and a smell for what biblical teaching and teachers ought to look like. Because we shouldn't pretend as if uh, spiritual leaders do not abuse 
this position at times. We can think of recent examples like uh, Ravi Zacharias, who was actually an important teacher for myself. And yet he used his position of teaching to actually abuse hundreds of different women. That any place of authority, including the churches, can be attractive to people that want to abuse authority for their own gains. But second, not only do we need to be consciously aware of this capability of corruption, but also we need to see the fact we are given a measuring stick for where this corruption ultimately sinks in. Because in this chapter, the starting point of these accusations is they are failing their duties as the priest. And where that failure is seeping in is they are shirking their duty to teach the people. Solid teaching is not something that we can take for granted. It's not something that is just arbitrary, a secondary issue for the church, that it is actually fundamental to the spiritual life of each and every one of us. Consider even church history as an example for us. Martin Luther against the Roman Catholic Church, and think of J. Gresham Machen at the beginning of the 20th century against modernist theology, that the one of the issues at stake there was what the teaching should be for the congregation. That Hosea 4 is really just serving as a case study for us today of what happens to a culture that begins to devalue the importance of teaching in the church. But that's just the first evidence that God gives against the priests. But now keep going in verses 12 to 14 and we see that God brings evidence against the common people. Because look at verses 12, it says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Because of this learned ignorance that the people have acquired, they no longer even have a biblical understanding of what revelation would look like to them. Because throughout the Old Testament and just throughout Scripture, the people of Israel approached God and received messages from him qualitatively different than any of their pagan neighbors. If you were to look at the cultures around them, they would do practices of divination where they would look for signs, omens. They would look at, they would look at wood or birds in the sky to try and connect with the divine and see what the divine is trying to tell them. But Yahweh, he would speak directly through his messengers, through prophets to reveal his message to the people, but because they no longer have any understanding of what they're supposed to do, they begin to act just like the people. They are going to wood. They are doing this practice called robdomancy, which they were looking to woods and staff to interpret what the divine would want them to do. In fact, they are so corrupt at this point and so ignorant that at the end of verse 12, it says, a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. In fact, that language there at the end of them leaving God, that is reminiscent of Israel under the bondage of Pharaoh back in Exodus. That this is a blatant accusation against them of saying that they are so against the words of the Lord that they actually find it oppressive as if they are under the bondage of Yahweh and his law. But instead of God, verses 13 tells us exactly what these people want now. Because verse 13, it tells us they sacrifice on top of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because they're 
shade is good. Why do I need to go to Jerusalem? Why do I need to go to the temple and offer sacrifices there when Baal's temple is just up the mountain? It is just in the valleys. They turn their ideas of worship into ideas of convenience, what is easiest for me to deal with. To be quite frank and blunt, if we were to understand exactly what the Canaanite religions were expecting of them, Baal just did not actually offer as much demands on the people as Yahweh was giving. And religious worship for them was just a matter of convenience and expediency. In fact, that same thinking can often even seep into how we view church for ourselves and how we view God and his commands for us. Just take uh, an example, because I don't think we are going to the Baal temples to offer sacrifices for ourselves, but just think of something as innocent as streaming. And streaming is a great thing. There's actually people, I'm assuming, are watching right now. And it's been a great blessing that God has used to help people maintain contact with the church. But there's also, there can be a culture that has been created recently where streaming almost just substitutes regular fellowship with believers in person. Why do I need to come to Hope and come in person when I don't even need to get out of my pajamas and I can listen to Tim Keller or Sinclair Ferguson? Why do I need to really do anything, be with other people, when I can keep to myself and keep to my own individual wants and desires? And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not disparaging streaming. This is a great help for many people. But the basic thing I'm trying to have us understand is this. Meeting in person with each other and fellowshipping is not just an arbitrary idea that church has decided is important. We actually at Hope believe that this is something that God has deemed as a blessing for us today. In fact, the entirety of the service, including us meeting together in person, is something that brings benefit and we believe is designed by God himself and regularly worshiping together is actually something that we shouldn't take for granted for our own spiritual life. But think back to the heart issue that the Israelites were considering. Think of what they were really acting like towards Yahweh. Because the problem was they thought that Baal was just easier to deal with than Yahweh. They were kind of picking and choosing what they wanted to do for God because this wasn't a wholesale just they weren't even acknowledging God. They were still probably giving Yahweh his dues, but they were mixing overtones of Baal worship into this idea. In fact, that's just blatant religious pluralism that we see today. It's why we find Eastern practices of meditation or yoga so popular for us today. We like to pick and choose what is most important for Christianity, and then we ignore what else the Bible tells us. But we should be very careful about how we approach this idea of just a smorgasbord where we pick and choose what Scripture says. Because St. Augustine, an early church father, once said that if you believe what you like in the Gospels and you reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospels you believe, but yourself. Following this accusation, God tells them the result of this spiritual idolatry, the result of what's going to happen to them. Because at the end of verse 13, it says, Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. This is probably one of the most blatant and clearest references of sex being connected to false cultic pagan worship in all of the Old Testament. 
because uh, her one historian looking at these practices, his name was Herodotus, he once spoke about these uh, cultic practices and said that every woman, at least once in her life in these cultures, had to sit at the temple and wait for a man to come cast money in her lap and claim her in the name of a goddess or god. The degradation of Israel's culture has reached such a level of corruption that now the woman, the women themselves are suffering. But now we are actually given something hopeful for probably one of the only hopeful things in this entire chapter. Look at verse 15 and we find, or 14, and we find what is called a landmark in moral history. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cults, prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. The prophet, for once, is, not, is refusing to treat the men's sexual and spiritual sins more lenient than the women. Because there actually was a double standard we can even see in the Old Testament. Consider the story of Judah and Tamar back in Genesis 38. And Judah, he actually is with Tamar uh, because he simply thinks she is a cult prostitute. He doesn't even know it's her. But once he finds out that Tamar is pregnant and he finds out that Tamar is pregnant because of prostitution, his exact words were, bring her out and let her be burned. Yet in Hosea, when Hosea is looking at this, he does not demean the women and he is not placing the blame on them. Rather, the clear focus of where this corruption is coming from is that the men themselves who have led to both spiritual and literal adultery in the land. But now that God has presented his case and presented his evidence against the people and the priests, we come to our third and final point. In verses 15 to 19, we see that God brings judgment against them all. Israel has become so corrupt that now even her southern neighbors, Judah, who would have been actually people that they were acquainted with and very close to, but look at verse 15 and what God says to Judah. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth Aven. These are places that would have been a part of northern Israel. And swear not as the Lord lives. This is beyond hope where they can't just suddenly pretend like they're going to start following the third commandment and swear by the Lord because their actions are completely apart from him. And Israel's spiritual health is so dire that these verses present them as an incurable situation. Hosea gives us three different ways to show us the spiritual state Israel is in currently. First, Israel is stubborn and immovable. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Second, Israel is bewitched by paganism. Ephraim is joined to idols. Literally, Israel is spellbound, or Ephraim is spellbound by these idols and false gods. Leave him alone. Finally, they give themselves over to debauchery, just this habitual life of living in hedonism. When their drink is gone, when they, they give themselves to whoring, their rulers dearly love shame. When they're liquored up, they give themselves to sex. And all that is left for them is this promise of coming judgment in verses 19. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall 
be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Israel is left in what appears to be an incurable situation, a hopeless and desperate life for them to live where they will not change and they will not repent and they are going to face God's judgment. In Israel's situation, at least for this chapter, ignorance was not bliss. And the people that God has once called my people are now, according to verse 14, simply a people. What are we to do with chapter 4 of Hosea? What applications can we make for our own spiritual life today? First, the Israelites are really just a case study for us of what happens when we harden our own heart towards God and what he has to say. Because don't think that this is just an Old Testament example, that even Paul himself speaks of a very similar reality that happens in Romans chapter 1, speaking of Greco-Roman culture. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Sometimes we convince ourselves and we believe that the only way God really would punish us is physically. And unless he attacks my finances, unless he comes after my family, unless he comes after my own health, I'm not actually facing God's judgment. But the application for us to see in Hosea 4 is one of the judgments God brings on his people is not blatant and physical judgment. One of the judgments he gives is he simply just gives us what we want. He gives us over to our desires, where actually Romans 1 describes it, that he hands them over and gives them up to their passions and desires. And that is literally what's happening to the people of Israel in Hosea 4. The divine restraint becomes less and less and less until we are left in the same exact spiritual state as Israel themselves. Don't balk at the seriousness of what actually hardening our hearts towards God does to us spiritually. It's not, it is sobering reality, and all of us should be praying to God and looking where we all ourselves need to be repentant and where we ourselves are ignorant of what God has to say. Second, ignorance of the people actually began at the highest level, which is important for us to consider for ourselves. The people became corrupt because the priests themselves were neglecting their duty. Our time listening to sermons, our time in Sunday school, our time with our family speaking about the word, our time just reading the word for ourselves is not something to be taken for granted. That we don't just read and study scripture because we have the same hobby, we read it because we see the same savior who is speaking to us through it. In fact, Jesus Christ himself he saw teaching as one of the most vital, important aspects for the church today. It's why he actually condemned regularly the spiritual leaders in his own public ministry. Consider Matthew 23, where he says to the scribes and the Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allowed those who would enter to go in. That teaching from scripture and solid understanding the text and seeking our best to see what God has to tell us in the word 
It's actually one of the most important spiritual aspects for our life today, and it is actually the death of a community when we begin to neglect just how important it is. And finally, the only remedy that we can find, and the only remedy that Israel is given for their situation is the very same thing the New Testament teaches us, and that is the idea of biblical repentance. Because we can get lost in chapter 4 and feel that this is such a hopeless situation for them. They will never change. In fact, this is not going to end because next week we'll, we'll talk about chapter 5, and judgment is going to keep coming against them until it's reached such a hopeless point that the only thing Yahweh can do is threaten divine abandonment in chapter 5, verse 15, where he says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Yet even with that threat and even with this hopeless situation for the people, Hosea makes a plea for them, which is nothing less than New Testament repentance in chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that we, he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. No matter how hopeless we feel the situation is in, no matter how dire we feel our spiritual life is at, even for the people back then are left in this incurable situation, the only remedy for it is to turn back to the Lord and repent of these sins, where they would find renewed fellowship and an opportunity for forgiveness. Because you may possess a hardened heart today, and you may feel that your spiritual state is so dire, you will never make a change in your life. You are going to continue to live your life however you want and pursue whatever you want that brings you joy. In fact, you may willfully and self-consciously have rejected the Savior, Jesus Christ, and the message of salvation from him. But one of the freedoms found in Jesus and what he is offering us in the gospel, what he's offering us in his death and resurrection, is a transformed heart and life where we are forgiven of our sins. We are brought back into renewed fellowship. We are justified and can stand before God acquitted of our sins, but ultimately we are actually have a new heart where we can turn to God. And no matter what ignorance we had before, we have this intimate, uh, intimate fellowship and familial position with God himself where we are literally adopted into his family. You may believe that ignorance is the best way to live your life. And yet from our passage today, we see exactly what happens to the people of Israel when they are ignorant of what God has taught them, when they have self-consciously ignored God's law. And we see that ignorance is not bliss for them, but actually ignorance of God brought them destruction and corruption. But through this story, even though we are left in this bleak situation, we see that the only hope that they have and the hope that we have today is when we turn from our sin and turn to the Savior and Lord in faith and repentance, we will be forgiven of our sins. We will be accepted in God's sight. And we will be brought back into his, or we will be brought into his family himself. We, and with this, let us pray.